your house falls down on top of your family. You're on your own. I mean, there really isn't any kind of robust government response that's available. It is the week of August 16th, and welcome to episode 93 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Caleb McCary, former Cuba Transition Coordinator during the Bush administration, a senior official at the Development Finance Corporation in the Trump administration, and also, and perhaps most importantly, a very senior advisor to both the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee during his career. He is a long-serving foreign policy worker in Washington with great experience in Latin America. He's a good friend of mine. He's a good friend of the podcast. Caleb, thanks for joining us. So, Caleb, um, uh, there's no one I can think of who would be better to talk to about what is going on in the Caribbean. I'm thinking specifically of Haiti and Cuba. I think we'll start with Haiti. Of course, there was an earthquake there in the last few days, tragic, almost insult upon injury to that poor, beleaguered country. The last report I saw so, saw over a thousand deaths. I presume those numbers are going to go up. I think Haiti and Haitians are in our thoughts and prayers, and we really are uh, rooting for them in a way that maybe we haven't before. I, I want to go a little bit deeper with you and talk about not just the humanitarian situation, but also the political situation on the island. Uh, the president, President Moïse, was assassinated last month. It was not even really the beginning of the political chaos there. We've seen uh, elections not held. The Supreme Court doesn't have a quorum. Uh, the parliament is largely non-functional. There was even a huge question as to who was the legitimate prime minister after the president died. Uh, we've seen revenge killings. We've seen people take advantage of the assassination. There's violence on the streets. Uh, things are pretty bleak in Haiti. Can, can you talk generally about Haiti as a nation, what it means to the United States, what, how our values come into play when we think about Haiti, but also what does it mean for our interests when things are this chaotic in a place like Haiti? Well, first off, you remember we worked when we worked on uh, Capitol Hill together, House Foreign Affairs Committee. Chairman Ben Gilman's best friend in Congress was Congressman Charlie Rangel, and Mr. Rangel was a great advocate for Haiti. And I remember him saying, and you'll you'll forgive my trying to reproduce his voice. When I get to heaven, I'm gonna ask the good Lord, what on earth did the Haitians ever do? And uh, <laughs> I think he had it about right. You know, you cannot find a nation that has suffered more indignities, violence, disease, um, poverty, hardly on the planet than Haiti. And uh, in terms of Haiti and as a nation, as you remember, I spent a great deal of time working on Haiti. Uh, it was uh, at a time when there was a great deal of interest in Haiti and a great deal of hope for what the United States might be able to do to help Haiti. You really have to start with a couple of things. The first is it's it's incredible history. The slavery was brutal, degrading, and vicious wherever it including in our own country. Condoleezza Rice called slavery our nation's birthright. But in Haiti, it was sugar plantations there generated great wealth. There was a slave revolt, and Haiti became one of the first independent republics after the United States, and the first black independent republic. And so Haitians are rightly proud of that. As a Haitian would tell you, they didn't get their independence in the mail. And so they're rightly very, very proud of that. 
but there was also a great deal of violence. The great military leader of the Haitian Revolution was uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines. His standing orders to his men was Coupetin Brulecaille, which means cut off heads, burn down houses. And the French, in their wisdom, arrested Henri Christophe, who was probably Haiti's best hope as its first leader, and he died in a, in a French prison. Haiti was born out of that in bloodshed uh, with a great proud history. If you fast forward and talk, answer your question about what is in our interest here. In the mid-80s, there was a real effort that was actually led by Democrats. Steve Horblitt, my dear friend, was worked with Walter Fontroy and others. Really, really, really put a lot of effort into helping Haiti to make a transition away from the Duvalier dictatorship, baby dog, to a democratic government. And in 1987, Haiti did write and pass uh, a democratic constitution. But the promise of that constitution has never, ever been realized by, by Haitians. So I think that we have a, a longstanding commitment to helping Haiti find democratic and institutional path Unfortunately, what really drives U.S. policy is immigration. In addition to, I think, the, the lofty ideals of helping um, Aristide, who was seen as a champion of the poor, um, return to power, U.S. policy towards Haiti is driven by uh, immigration policy and the fear of mass migration. I certainly remember when I was working on Cuba policy, uh, the entire structure of the U.S. government that deals with immigration uh, was absolutely fixing and planning for what you do when mass migration happens again. And so if you want to put it in a nutshell to answer your question, we do have a humanitarian mission there. And I, I want to go into that a little more. We have, uh, I would call, uh, a long-term mission to help Haiti uh, realize uh, its own its own historical desire to, to be a, a democratic and independent nation, um, as expressed in the 1987 Constitution. And underpinning it all, we have a very hard-edged interest in preventing mass migration. Let's talk about the, the humanitarian situation in Haiti. There was a, a massive earthquake there about a decade ago. Up to a quarter million Haitians died in that tragedy. There, Haiti is still reeling from the effects of that earthquake. A UN peacekeeping force went in. There were disease outbreaks. We've had this other, uh, hopefully much lesser impactful earthquake happen in the last few days. Haiti really can't catch a break on the humanitarian side. What, what should we be doing differently? What should we be doing more of that we're not doing enough now? Or should we not be doing as much? How do we be a better neighbor to Haiti when it comes to these humanitarian questions? So the real, you know, the, the answer to that question is first, of course, Haiti, you know, as Charlie Rangel really had it right. You know, it seems destined to add suffering to, to more suffering. Um, the most recent earthquake is, is, is tragic and devastating. Um, it fortunately did, did not uh, seem to have affected Port-au-Prince, which is a major population center. There will be a, you know, that the United States almost certainly will, you know, is and will lead a relief response. There isn't a country in the world with more um, uh, humanitarian organizations having a presence in Haiti. This is a blessing and a curse. So I don't doubt that there will be a humanitarian response and one that will not repair what has happened, but that will respond and help 
the other piece of this is that the institutional capacity internally to respond is very, very weak. Uh, people are on their own. Your house falls down in Haiti on top of your family. You're on your own. I mean, there really isn't any kind of robust government response that's available. And so the great tragedy is of Haiti is that these things continue to happen, and Haiti itself continues to be incapable of responding. Haiti, sadly, is an unfortunate Haiti is on you know, an earthquake-prone zone and also a zone where hurricanes pass through. You know, back uh, even 20 years ago, and I, and I can't imagine it's much different now, um, I remember an official in our U.S. agency for international development telling me that USAID was responsible for um, like 80% of the feeding programs in Haiti, feeding millions of people. That's nice. It's good, but it's not sustainable by Haitians. And so... It's a little hard to have the conversation I think we should have, which is having worked very, very hard on Haiti, passionate about it, I came to the conclusion that Haiti needs help, but it also, frankly, needs some tough love. Well, I think that's a that's a great jumping off point to the kind of the political and security question in Haiti. The politics are, are catastrophic in Haiti as much as anything else is. They haven't had, they've skipped elections. There's questions of legitimacy in almost every part of the government. There's no security force. There's no policing that appears to really be happening on the streets. There's, I presume there's a temptation for some American policymakers to think we need to help provide security. We should be thinking about a peacekeeping force. We should be thinking about sending in uh, a friendly force of U.S. troops to provide the framework for a, a kind of a new beginning on the political side, provide some stability before elections, that kind of thing. We've tried that in the past. It hasn't really worked that well, except maybe in the very short term. How do you, how do you politically implement a tough love scenario for Haiti? Is, is the Biden administration up for doing something like that and letting events perhaps take their course more than our humanitarian concerns might indicate? And by the way, we say all this, uh, you and I are recording this as Afghanistan is going through an incredible reckoning uh, and a very humbling lesson for anyone who would try a yeah. uh, robust peacekeeping mission or nation building exercise. So what does that mean for Haiti? And what does it mean for the United States if we were to sit back and watch things perhaps get even a little bit worse in Haiti before they get better? Well, well I remember um, a number of years ago talking with Elliot Abrams, long before all the current troubles. Um, he asked me, how's Nicaragua doing? I said, well, it's kind of gone back to being Nicaragua. Afghanistan's gone back to being Afghanistan. And Haiti has gone back it's a little different from Afghanistan in that it's you know very near to the United States. You also, frankly, have at least two million Haitians, Americans of Haitian descent, living. Um, by the way, you know Haitians are successful. Um, I remember talking with a school teacher from from Miami. She said, "When you see the little girl whose clothes are immaculate and pressed and her math homework is done, she is inevitably Haitian." And um, and that's true. For many decades, and even even today, Haitians among uh, you know will go out of their way to spend money to educate their children. Um, the public schools are terrible, and so they rely on you know, privately run schools that are not regulated, mixed quality. So it's not that there isn't an impulse there to to better things. It's just that things are so chaotic, and resources are so such a point of conflict. 
it's not about the morally republic, repugnant elites versus the poor. There's some to something to that. But it's really about the very fabric of a society where there's no trust. The first thing you need to understand about Haiti is there is no trust. Even within families, there's no trust. Um, I lost a, a very dear friend in um, in the, the big earthquake. Um, Misha Gaillard, who was just a lovely human being, a man of the left, um, a decent man who supported Aristide. And there was another friend of mine, Lionel de la Tour, who, who lost his parents when the art gallery collapsed. And these are two intelligent, educated, capable Haitians, more or less of the same social class, who probably didn't live that far apart. They didn't know each other. So to understand Haiti is to, to understand that. The other piece of it is the part that we don't really see or understand, which is um, the whole culture, which is one that is different. Um, I'm not saying it's bad um, uh, or even good. It just is. And, you know, you have to understand that there is, you know, the whole when the Haitians separated from their families were dragged into slavery, you know, they took their religious beliefs. And, you know, to understand Haiti, you have to understand voodoo and how that fits into this. I remember talking with some missionaries, some Haitians, and, you know, uh, came to our church and talked about their work. And I pulled them aside. I said, so you, you know, you, you are followers of Christ. He says, yes. So you don't accept voodoo anymore? He said, oh, oh no. It's just Christ is a more powerful than, than the voodoo spirit. My sister had her soul stolen, and it was buried in a jar, and, and we had to get a hoongan to, to, to help get her soul back. This sounds bizarre to us uh, and maybe even risible, but it's not. It's very serious. And so there's a, there's a real disconnect culturally. Uh, you know, as we're talking about you know, how to move Haiti forward. They have a whole different religious and social construct that we really don't even understand. And so... The way forward, first off, I think that probably the departure of the UN mission was premature. Uh, I think that uh, it probably should have continued in some form. The only way the institutions can ever get strong and survive is if they have enough space to get organized and strong enough to resist the side of our all of our humanity, which gravitates towards selfishness and corruption. I think they need help in that regard. When I say about tough love, what I mean is, for example, when uh, Moise was elected, I remember it was during the Obama administration, and uh, we said, meaning Senator Corker supported the Obama administration's approach, which was every time there was an election in Haiti, the United States essentially paid for it. We went in, the ballots, we paid for hiring all the personnel. You know, the, the, the administration, the State Department decided we're done with it. You know, you need to have an election and you need to do it. You know what? They actually had one of their better elections. You know, they got someone competent to run the electoral council, and they had a pretty good election. So I think that even you know, there's this this notion that somehow that Haitians are less than and can't do this is ridiculous. I want to ask you about something you mentioned a little bit earlier: the issue of trust between Haitians and how the lack of it can lead to chaos and, uh, and disruption. Do you think there's any lessons in that for our own country? Yes. You know, I, I spent when we were trying, I, I was 
not in the U.S. government, but I was working on a government grant. We tried to help Haitians come to an agreement under which Aristide could return. Very, 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 very divisive. And we had Haitians together from different ideologies and perspectives, members of their of their chamber of deputies. And, you know, the defining moment came when my friend Misha Gaillard, who I mentioned who was killed in the earthquake, uh, an Aristide supporter, a man of the left, French ambassador talks, said to the Haitian side, you are our colony and we can take you back anytime. There's nothing the French ambassador could have said that would have elicited a stronger response on the Haitian side than that. Let me be clear. And uh, France Robert Mondet, Thibault Mondet, who was a rightist, a former devalurist, um, had a heart condition and basically started having terrible heart palpitations. And Misha ran to his room and, and got his medicine and gave it to him. And that was the moment that they finally came together, decided they were going to do something for their country. You know, traveling across the country as I am now, I see that when it's us versus them, we, we dehumanize the other and we don't value what they value. So I think that, you know, every, everything that, that, that is the lesson here is that kind of chaos, because we are human beings and our founding fathers understood that governing democratically was to set up institutions so you could govern democratically despite our nature, that we think Haiti is not as far off as you think. And, and so, you know, that is where conflict ultimately and, and squabbling over things takes you. So I think the lesson for us is to take a step back and, you know, agree to disagree recognize what we have in common um, as Americans, especially at this moment, and also to, even in the midst of conflict, to try to understand and value uh, the other. Let's talk about Cuba, the other somewhat troublesome nation state in the Caribbean. Of course, there were demonstrations there a few weeks ago, massive demonstrations in many different parts of the island against the regime. Folks pick your poison, upset about the response to COVID, upset about general authoritarian rule, upset about the lack of democracy, upset about the oppression of human rights and artists. And finally, the people talk to each other and decide they're going to do something about it. The regime appears to have squashed those uh, protests for now. A lot of folks are in jail. As a uh, longtime Latin America expert and worker and someone who's been to Cuba and has seen this stuff up close and personal, what what is your take on the current situation on the island? And then also, how should the Biden administration be responding to what's going on there right now? Well, Cuba is a country that is close to us in, in so many ways. It's inextricably tied to our own um, nation. It's pretty much inextricably tied to, tied to our own electoral politics, given the importance of Florida in national elections uh, in, in the U.S. and how close elections are in Florida. With regard to what happened with the protests, I was not surprised that they happened, but it was surprising to see how bold people and the the, the real and, and Cuban Americans, Cubans know this. They know that people really resent um, the control and the lack of opportunity. To see ordinary Cubans chasing police officers down the street, throwing garbage at them, that was surprising and I think significant and important. And so 
uh, I, you know, I had no doubt that the Cuban government would um, act to repress and uh, to, to end the protests. And that's, of course, what happened. It doesn't take a point to, to see that. I think that what's interesting about it is that it comes at a moment in Cuba where a generational shift is happening from what uh, the communists down there call the historicos, historical. And, and so a younger generation of Cuban communists um, have come to power. And the question is, where are they going to take you? And is it possible that things could change? You think given uh, this kind of surprising development, the intensity of the protests, the fact that there is this generational change in the leadership on the island, the Castro brothers are out, one is dead, one is not really in power anymore. We've got uh, a new face, a new name, Miguel Diaz-Canal. Given all of that, is there a rationale and an impetus for the Biden administration to push a little bit on the accelerator for change on the island, whether it's perhaps providing overt assistance to folks, certain folks on the island, whether it's doing things uh, not necessarily in the overt realm. But is this a chance for the administration to maybe actually have a different outcome on the island? I think it's possible for Cubans to have a different outcome on the island. And that's a possibility that I think is worth exploring. What the United States government can do or should do, can do, that's a, that's a question that really, in my mind, should go around. How does what we do help that possibility? There were two things that, um, that I think were important that were done during the Bush administration um, when I was Cuban transition coordinator. And that was a, a position where <laughs> I was to lead our, our efforts to hasten climate change in Cuba clearly failed miserably in that task. And we were to do so, and we did, uh, in the framework of U.S. law, which is the Helmsburg slash Libertana. We'll talk about a little bit about that as well. Um, so first off, why the protests were not, not a surprise is that everyone, including the Cuban government, every July waits for that to happen. That is the hottest month of the year in a country where there's very little air conditioning. And during what was euphemistically called the special period by the government down there after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, there were pretty, pretty big protests in Havana as well. And in that one, Fidel Castro personally went out and talked. He wasn't here this time, and nobody went out and talked to anyone. There's a, there's a question, I think, for the government there to think about, you know, if Castro personally defused that situation. They should think about how what they did is different from what he did. They should ask themselves some questions. The other thing is that, you know, these protests were actually begun with some protests by artists in, in Cuba. You really need to understand that the artistic community in, in Cuba is the one area where a certain amount of freedom of expression actually exists, uh, at least, you know, in artistic expression. And quite frankly, many of the artists are from families that are part of the government. And so, you know, I, I always believe that civil society was far broader than Cuba than we imagined it to be. 
that's another thing I think the government down there really needs to think about. There are differences within the, the, the Communist Party. There's been a big debate over um, how far to go with economic reforms. Uh, and those who want to push economic reforms, I think, are more pragmatic than reformers. But they seek to, you know, they they, they seek to alleviate their uh, situation where, you know, frankly, cash flow isn't there, um, you know, to to sustain the system. Um, what was an adequate system, and they claimed a great system, uh, with Soviet subsidies collapsed. And then, you know, this is a pretty threadbare image of, of, of at least what they said it was or, or, or what it actually is. And so you have a situation where they need to find a way forward. For them, the debate on the other side is, you know, if we allow people to have private enterprise, and they're going to have a lot more money and resources than anyone else. And this is going to create inequality. These people are communists. <laughs> and it's also if you're if you're working in a government ministry earning the equivalent of twenty dollars a month, and and someone some entrepreneur is earning two thousand dollars a month, that's a hell of an income. Um, doesn't sound like much here, but there it is. And so these are the kinds of questions they're facing. And uh, I think that the 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 answer to your question about the Biden administration and the opportunity is okay, given that these are some of the pieces that are there at least on the government side. We haven't talked about Cubans abroad or dissidents in Cuba. Um, what is What do they imagine the path forward to be on their side? Um, what is possible? It's my understanding. I think they would like to normalize the United States. They appreciated the Obama administration's policy. Those on the hardline side believe that that was a soft-headed approach and that, you know, that we didn't get any. They're not entirely wrong about it. Uh, the question is, what is it that would be um, except for us? Ironically, um, the Cuban government, they would never, ever, ever in a thousand years accept this. But the irony is that they're pretty close to meeting the conditions of the Helms-Burton law, which basically called for you know, a new government that doesn't contain the Castro's. Um, and the thing they're missing is a commitment to elections, real elections. Well, are they willing to entertain that? So. I think there's an opportunity. Some may call me naive, but I, but I, I think that the the thing that I, you know, I think that we did do in changing U.S. policy was to very clearly state, President Bush, that Cuba's future will be decided by Cubans in Cuba, and that has to mean all Cubans. So I think I know the answer to this, but what's your answer to those? And they're not all on the left. There are some in the middle and even a few on the right, but it's mostly on the left, I would say, who would argue that the real issue with Cuba is in fact the U.S. embargo and that before we can do play any positive role on the island, we need to let go of these economic restrictions we've placed on Cuba. What's your take? I don't think that that will work. But the question is, what is it that lifting the embargo would do? You wouldn't know until you did, of course. I think that people on the other side would argue that it would just simply enrich um, the regime um, that Gaviota and other state-owned companies that are run by the military um, would essentially benefit. And so I think that the, the real answer is, how do you find a path where we can lift? Um, and that was why I was asking the question, what is it that we think would be 
in our interest to see happen. Um, you know, what are our interests in Cuba? They're, they're actually quite similar to the interests in Haiti, with the difference that, as threadbare as it is, the Cuban state is, is still far more better organized and more capable than, than what exists in Haiti. But the question then is, okay, well, what does a way forward look like where that would be possible? And I think that, you know, the things that, you know, we want to see are obviously, you know, the Cuban government really wants to talk to us about the stuff they see as our core interests, migration issues, law enforcement, um, coordination, kinds of hard issues. And, and you know, part of the, the, the problem with U.S. Uh, maintaining U.S. pressure on is that there are conflicting interests in the U.S. government. Um, you know, you have a policy interest in maintaining the embargo. Um, you have uh, you know, law enforcement agencies and even our military who have a mission to, to you know, accomplish, and they don't understand why they can't work with the government. Um, I personally think you can do both. Um, I think that you can, but you have, to, you have to think about what it is you're trying to accomplish. It's not engagement for engagement's sake. Often the debate was really about our policy and the disagreement we have over our policy and not so much about Cuba. And so I think it's important to focus on what's actually happening on the island. Now there's some interesting things happening that are generating some pressures and forces within the island that I think are different than what has existed in the past. Uh, and so, um, you know, what is it that we would like to see? Obviously, we want to protect our core interests. But I think, you know, honestly, we'd like to see Cuba become a normal member of, of, of a community of nations in, in the region. Um, we'd like to see them, frankly, hold democratic elections. Um, you know, we'd like them to open up politically. Uh, and I think it's actually in their interest to do so. I had a, I had a fascinating conversation in, in Cuba with uh, someone uh, from the government down there, and I'm pretty sure he was from the intelligence service. He was uh, he was pulling me aside so that uh, his boss could get Senator Corker alone and, and talk to him. And I, I, of course, saw that, knew exactly what was going on, and I had no clue that. So this guy just sort of made conversation. I had, I had actually put a meeting on the schedule with Senator Corker and leaders from the National Assembly of People's College, which is their, their communist legislature. Um, and, I, and I did it, frankly, you know, as a gesture, a respectful gesture, not that the National Assembly of People's Power and the United States Senate are really the same thing, um, but just as a gesture. I think it was it was received well. Um, and uh, this 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 person said to me, you know, the National Assembly is not what it used to be. It would be nice if it could get back to having more more influence. I said, yeah. I think that would be good. I have a question for you. I said, do you need to be a communist to run for the National Assembly? I said, no, actually, you don't. Now, of course, the Communist Party decides ultimately who runs and who doesn't. But the point here is that you don't have to be a communist to run for the National Assembly. That's their system. Would they be open to allowing other individuals and parties to run an election for the National Assembly? I don't know. Seems like an interesting question to ask. Caleb, let's uh, let's pull back from individual countries and look at the region as a whole. Latin America, it really hasn't been on the front burner for President Biden. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? What what do you think the U.S. approach to the region properly should be? 
well, you know, I'll go back to Senator Cork. God bless him. He said, I really don't. Early on, he said, I, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I really don't care that much about Latin America. I said, I get it, Senator. It's okay. And then pretty much one of the last things he said to me, you know, I wish I'd spent a lot more time in Latin America and less in the Middle East. We might have gotten something done. You know, he said, it's a region that is mostly at peace. That certainly is not hostile to us by and large. And where there are opportunities. And so I think that, you know, historically, ideally, there's like, I'll talk ideally and then I'll talk about, you know, what's realistic. Ideally, we would stop looking at Latin America through the lens of problems. Um, whenever we pay attention to Latin America, it's because of some problem. You know, Haiti is a problem to be resolved. Cuba is a problem. Nicaragua, a problem. Venezuela, a problem. Drug trafficking, a problem. I'm not saying these things are problems. I'm just saying if all you do is like chase after problems, A, you're going to get pretty burned out after a while. The other thing is, I think that we ought to be thinking about it, um, and this includes all Americans, including ones who come from these countries, about not to be dragged into conflicts. Um, I think, you know, if you look at Nicaragua, um, every time, you know, the, you know, people decry the fact that they the United States Marines invaded Nicaragua, you know, at the early part of the 20th century, and, and you know, that led to Sandinismo and all of that. I think that's a pretty simplistic view of it. But what people don't talk about is that every time we went in there, it was at the invitation of some group that found itself at a disadvantage and wanted us to intervene on their side. Um, and then everybody was horrified when we pursued our own interests. Um, so I think we got to think about that, you know not be dragged into things, you know, to take sides. It's not that you don't speak up and address real human rights abuses. Um, but I think you need to think of it not as, you know, we, we tend to be lenient toward an ally like Colombia about human rights and harsh on an enemy like Cuba. Um, and I think we ought to be really using, you know, uh, our uh, the tools of our engagement, including the Development Finance Corporation, and, you know, how to engage not just, you know, uh, the private sector writ large, but again, to, to, to engage the private sector in the region. You know, they have uh, tremendous resources and, you know, we should be working with them um, to encourage them to invest in their own countries and in the region to get the kind of development that creates jobs, that creates stability and, and ultimately good trading partners and, and ultimately addresses the uh, some of the underlying factors that drive outward migration. The Biden administration, I think, has an opportunity to do this. I think they're doing the right thing um, in supporting um, talks between the government uh, led by Maduro and the government led by uh, Guaido uh, in Mexico City. I think they're definitely doing the right thing there. Uh, that's a conflict without wanting to be seen as, as saying the horrible things that have happened under uh, Maduro government are excusable, but this is a conflict between Venezuelans, and there are certain standards that we must insist on, democratic standards, human rights standards, that you know, they should embrace, but ultimately it's their country that they have to resolve. So I think the Biden administration has an opportunity there, and I think that could actually be helpful even as thinking about a way forward with Cuba. I think that you know, uh, we have a real question mark in Peru, with the new president there, he was very just barely elected. We don't yet know where he's going with this. 
think we should try to be helpful. I think that that's, you know, uh, we shouldn't reject, we should try to help and see if there's an openness to move, move in that direction. And be prepared if it doesn't. And I think the Biden administration is moving to some degree in the right direction. You know, on Venezuela, I think on Central America, um, they're thinking about, you know, the economic side of it, but imperfect. I think that they, you know, you need to be able to address the uncomfortable realities there of death, corruption, um, while at the same time not losing the capacity to work there. By the way, I, I do want to say that during the Trump administration, it was a very hard line on Cuba and Venezuela. Um, and while I don't think that the hard line is going to produce kind of rapid change that was, I think, envisioned for that hard line, it did create a tremendous amount of pressure and I think leverage. And, and I think the credit is due there. Um, the question is, what do you do with it? And what's, what's possible? Caleb, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for being on Fault Lines this week. Absolutely, Les. It uh, makes my heart soar like a hawk. <laughs> <laughs> That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.